Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, May 3rd, and because the richest man in the world has made it so, it's also Twitter Tuesday. Bill Cohan joins us with the latest update on Elon Musk buying the platform that we all love to hate. But will he walk away? And later on in the show, Eric Gardner stops by with a look at the deals Netflix is currently negotiating and why they might boost their profits. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad Bed Cooling System is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy tuesday everybody welcome to the podcast i am joined today uh, by bill cohan who has been following every twist and turn of the elon musk saga how you doing bill good peter nice to be back with you yes i'm enjoying the frequency of your appearances now i feel like we're getting closer Oh, God, it's so lovely. <laughs> yeah. um, so you, you have a piece up on Puck. Uh, it popped over the weekend, which is sort of digging into the the billion-dollar question that everyone's asking about this whole thing is, will Elon walk away? And I think one reason people are asking that question is it felt like at first he was doing this on a whim, and then he got into it, and then he was immersed in controversy, and, you know, was he going to be able to afford this? And you know, Tesla stock is taking a hit. Um, tell us what this $1 billion call option is. Like, what does that mean? If he'd have to pay a billion dollars or something if he doesn't end up buying the company? Yeah, essentially, that's that's what he would do. He, you know, uh, a call option is the right to buy something at a set time at a set price or buy a set time at a set price. So basically, he's paid a billion dollars, uh, in effect, 
for the right to buy Twitter for $44 billion in the next year because the drop dead date in the contract is October or whatever, 24th, but it can be extended for six months. So that's another, so that's another six months, so basically a year. And, you know, if for whatever reason, he can't get his financing together. He can't get that $21 billion of equities promised or there's regulatory hurdles or something crops up in due diligence. I mean, there is a list of things that allow him to walk away. Then he can just pay a billion dollars and forget the whole thing. Would it be more about him not being able to cobble all the financing together? Or is this more about him like just having, if he backed away, just having second thoughts about the whole enterprise? I mean, it seems like he really wants to do this, right? It seems like he really wants to do this. I can't for the life of me figure out why <laughs> he wants to do this or why he would want to own this. I mean, I wouldn't spend $44 billion on this if I were him, but okay, whatever. He <laughs> seems to want it. He seems to like it. He seems to have fun with it. He's like a kitten with a ball of string with it. There are a lot of reasons he can just decide, you know, if he can't get his financing together or there's something he discovers now in the quote unquote due diligence, where he's, you know, sort of digging into the company, digging in to the numbers in a way that he probably wasn't allowed to before now. Or, you know, he could blame uh, his decision on that and just have, have another decision, which is, uh, uh, you know, never mind. I was just kind of kidding, but I'm going to say it was I couldn't get my financing together, or I didn't like what I saw in due diligence. And you know, for him to pay a billion dollars, it's like not even uh, you know one percent of his net worth. So uh, obviously, paying 44 billion is a lot larger percent of his net worth. Obviously, not all that money is coming from him, but a lot of it is 30 uh, um, uh, million or 32 and a half million of it or so. You know, that's obviously a more meaningful part of his net worth. Not going to change his lifestyle one way or the other. Another catalyst, of course, would be if the Tesla stock uh, falls out of bed because he's now uh, using that as collateral for a lot of the financing for Twitter. You know, I have to say I'm impressed how well it's held up. I mean, of course, anytime anybody uh, has thought that uh, a, a Tesla stock uh, was overvalued or would fall or bet that it would fall. He won that battle every time. So uh, this is sort of yet another death-defying experience he's having uh, at Tesla. Now, it's relatively early, but he, he did you know, sell $8.5 billion of Tesla stock last week. Again, you would have thought that would have spooked the market. But on the other hand, as I wrote yesterday, I think the terms of his margin loan are uh, a little more strict from his perspective than they might have been, which means that he had to put up more stock to get the $12.5 billion margin loan than otherwise would have. But the good news for that is that he's got more leeway in terms of seizing the collateral and in terms of how far the stock can fall So before that might happen. So I think maybe the market understands that better now and, and so the sort of Damocles sort of hanging out there about this might have been um, ameliorated to some some degree. The, the Tesla stock sale intrigued me in part because <laughs> as, a, as a political journalist, I, you know, you hear Elizabeth Warren, for example, I would say I'd call it a half demagogue. She does a half demagogue where she says, 
you know, billionaires don't pay taxes. Billionaires like Elon Musk don't pay taxes. Certainly not on their W-2s like the rest of us. But <laughs> he sold $8.5 billion of Tesla stock last week, which in your math and your piece comes out to a tax bill of around $2 billion, <laughs> you know, which is like a fourth of what the U.S. is, is giving to uh, Ukraine in, in, in terms of like money and weapons to defend itself against Russia. That is a not insignificant tax bill. But, you know, you mentioned the health of, of Tesla's stock. Is there is there a world where it's good for Tesla as a company that Elon is less involved over there because he's such a lightning rod and he's such a micromanager? I mean, he's clearly like helped build and scale this company to a place that's made it pretty impressive. But, you know, this is a really interesting world-changing product they're making over there at Tesla. If his attention is over on Twitter, in other words, and not so much on SpaceX and Tesla, and they can just sort of do their own thing while he's focused on Twitter. Could that be a good thing if you're a shareholder in one of those companies? Yeah, I mean, it, it could be. I mean, one of the things I've read is that, you know, he's been more hands-off at Tesla anyway lately because he's got a management team in there sort of running things day to day. You know, I was out recently at Rivian, which is... A, oh, yeah, that's another... down the street from me in Venice. It's only a $90,000 truck. <laughs> right. Down the street of you in Venice, I was out uh, at their manufacturing plant in Normal, Illinois, two hours south of Chicago, and uh, just walking around that plant and and seeing how incredibly intricate it, it is. I mean, you know, of course, making a car is going to be intricate anywhere, but making an electric car is incredibly intricate, and you know, you have to be a real hands-on, detailed guy. So, I mean, obviously, he's built. You know, like he didn't start. Tesla, he basically took it over. He, you know, it was a financial play that's worked out extremely well. He he must have some knowledge and skills. He's proven uh, that he can multitask, right? Because he's got SpaceX, he's got uh, rockets landing back on the landing pad. Uh, he's he's got the Boring Company, which just you know raised more money at a new valuation. Mm-hmm. I cannot imagine though that he's going to want to be the CEO of this company, I suspect, you know, he's got, you know, six months to a year now to find somebody who will do his bidding. And I suspect he'll find any number of people willing to do that. I don't know. He's such a strange guy, but he's been also been so successful. Uh, I would think uh, Tesla shareholders would be nervous if he left and was spending too much time on Twitter, but maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. So the last thing I want to ask you real quick is, and maybe this is more of a Kara Swisher, Scott Galloway, question, but you know, you're not a stock advisor, you're not a financial advisor, but this guy is, is pretty volatile, but he's also pretty smart and people on the internet, internet dwellers are losing their minds that he's going to ruin Twitter, which is already kind of a hellscape. What's the bull case for Twitter under Elon Musk, like as a private company? And what's the, what's the bear case in your mind? Can you like handicap this for us? You know, I don't know what it means, you know, a bull or a bear case when Twitter becomes a private company, except other than can he pay down the 13-ish billion of senior debt that he's now obtained to buy this company? Can he pay the interest on that? And can he pay that debt down? He's only got like a billion dollars of EBITDA, and that's not even free cash flow, probably less of free cash flow. So I think there's a fair amount of risk to that 13 billion unless 
he's got some plans to increase profitability, which is inconsistent with what he said, which is he plans to you know, eliminate advertising, which is basically the only source of the revenue. So I'm not exactly sure that's going to destroy profitability. So I don't really care about the bull case or the bear case, you know, for him personally, he, he owns the equity. The only thing that matters at the moment is whether he uh, can pay back the debt. Cause if he can't pay back the debt, then this thing will go into bankruptcy and he'll lose control of it. And then, and then it'll be owned by the banks. If he, figure out a way to pay off that debt, which of course he could do just by writing a check. As you say, it's already a hellscape. Uh, <laughs> I think he needs to keep it a hellscape because, you know, if he, if he brings back too much of the, the haters and the, the horribles, uh, then, you know, how much of his audience is going to leave? I mean, uh, you know, I'm on the edge anyway, as a Twitter user, if he starts back in with the Donald Trump's and the Alex Jones, that would say, I'll, you know, hell with it. Goodbye. I don't need it. All right, Bill. Thanks for thanks for handicapping that for us. Um, sure, I, Peter. We appreciate it so much. We'll see you next time. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome back, everyone. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Eric Gardner on his beat right now. Thanks, Peter. Ever since Netflix announced that it lost subscribers last quarter, I've been hearing a lot from lawyers representing both TV creators and Hollywood stars. They want to know what Netflix's sagging growth means for their clients because, let's face it, Netflix is huge and influential and everyone in entertainment follows their lead. Everyone wants to know whether Netflix will stop splurging on content. Truth be told, I don't know if anyone outside of the streamer's headquarters knows the answer. That said, I do think there are a few things we can learn about Netflix's priorities from those who are negotiating across from deal makers for the company. Number one, Netflix is focused on how else they can make money besides winning more subscribers. In negotiations for new content, Netflix is looking to capture the right to adapt video games and sell merchandise. Number two, Netflix wants to have the ability to take content off its platform. Why? Maybe Netflix envisions a sale of the company down the line, or maybe Netflix just wants to earn more revenue by eventually licensing shows like Bridgerton or Ozark to broadcasters, both domestically and foreign. And if you think Netflix would sacrifice exclusivity and never do something like that, guess again, they've already dipped their toes in syndication with a drug cartel series, Narcos. Finally, and this is perhaps most fascinating to me, Netflix is not interested currently in making profit sharing deals with TV creators. Why would they do this? Well, in the past, they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars in fixed compensation for star showrunners like Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy. Theoretically, Netflix could pay less to these creators on the front end if Netflix shared more of the rewards of the success on the back end, meaning less risk if less upside. Hollywood lawyers, though, tell me that's not happening at the moment, and maybe there's a good reason, as Netflix eyes video games, merchandising, and eventually the metaverse. That's what I got for today. I'll keep you posted, Peter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 